Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to And The Update Is. I'm your host, Paige MacDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Sony is spending $1 billion to buy another 3% stake in Epic Games to help build the metaverse. Judges in the U.S. have hinted that the mechanical royalty rate paid to publishers and songwriters for vinyl sales should rise. Latin music is on course to generate over $1 billion in the U.S. for 2022. Seven years after its IPO collapsed, Deezer is in the talks to go public again via a special purpose acquisition company. Universal Music Publishing Group has struck an exclusive global deal with Authentic Brands Group, owner of Elvis Presley's Enterprises, to represent Elvis Presley's historic song catalog. Believe has appointed Alex Kennedy as UK Managing Director. Cobalt has promoted Lisa Bergami to Vice President of Creative Sync. Universal Music has launched Capitol Records, Italy. Warner Chapel has signed producer 2Dope in partnership with TM88. Indie label agency Merlin has inked a partnership with South Korea-based music streaming app Flow. Deezer is rolling out an in-app translation of lyrics. Luno, which is a cryptocurrency platform with more than 10 million users, has announced its new partnership with the London venue, Coco. BMG is releasing a new film about David Bowie called Moon Age Daydream, which is described as a definitive new portrait of the late star. The US-based music and media company Create Music Group has acquired a majority interest in The Nations, which is a portfolio of curated music YouTube channels that reaches a collective audience of more than 60 million people. Mark Jackson has joined the LA-based distribution company Human Resources as its vice president, head of Human Resources Atlanta. The US-based high-end speaker maker Sonos has acquired a Netherlands-based speaker company called Mate Holding BV. James McKnight has been named head of entertainment research and development for Stockholm-based entertainment company Pop House. Republic has relaunched Mercury Records. Daniel Caesar has signed with Republic Records. A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's very exciting episode of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's revolutionary producer changed the game, literally. The way we do music in 2021 is partly because the music business started doing it his way 20 years ago. At 16 years old, this guy was producing Billboard charting records. At 18 years old, he was defining the biggest artists of a generation. There are prodigies and there are workaholics. Marry those together 
and you have one of the most influential beat makers in pop history. Don't believe me? Ask Beyonce or Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, Mary J. Blige, Jennifer Lopez, etc., etc., etc. Responsible for over 170 million records sold worldwide, this writer is an advocate and a family man. And the writer is Rodney Darkchild Jerkins. What's up, Ross? <laughs> so, man, thank you. How are you? I'm well, man. Good seeing you. Thank you for thank you for having me on this, man. I remember when you first started this and and the ideas of it, and you talking about what you're going to do and to see it come to fruition and being um, just something great and incredible and giving insight and information to so many so many um, talented people that need to learn. It's just a great thing to see, man. So I'm, I'm just honored to be a part of it. I love that. Well, let's start. Uh, let's start from the beginning, because uh, I I think that it's a sh- pretty short beginning, considering you how young you were to enter into the music industry. But you're born in New Jersey. Uh, your your parents were um, your parents were. Uh, church, like your your mom ran the choir in church, is that right? And your dad, yeah. your dad was a minister, so you kind of grew up with parents doing music, right? Yeah, very active in the church. Like my dad's a pastor, still is a pastor, by the way, almost eighty years old, still a pastor, and pa- been pretty much pastoring since he was probably young twenties. Um, my mom was the choir director. Um, my sister was the drummer. My brother was the pianist. My other sister sang in the choir. And then I was the last born. So, you know, it was nothing but music in our house, in our home. So I kind of gravitated towards the drums more so than the piano. But my dad had this house rule of you can't live in our house unless you play the piano. So we all had to get piano lessons. And I remember as a, I remember as a, you know, a five-year-old kid not wanting to play the piano. It's actually something I did not want to do. Um, little did I know would be like the greatest thing ever, you know, for me. So whenever I get back talk for my kids, because they all have to play the piano now, my four kids, and and they don't want to do it. And I always tell them, no, you're going to do it because I had to do it. And it worked out, you know. So thank you, mom, for pushing me into the piano. Why is it that, and I feel like I've asked this question a lot, and so it says, it proves the point, but why are church musicians so good at pop music it feels like i think um i think it's funny i think you know in 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 the in the in, in and i'm gonna be kind of specific in the churches that have gospel um because not every church has gospel by the way you got different you know styles of church but the churches that have gospel it's a lot of free handed meaning like when you go and you're playing in those churches it's kind of like no rules. So for me, like when I used to play in a church, um, you're kind of creating for some reason all the time. You're creating off the movement of the people in the church. You're creating off the pastor who's speaking. You know, there's certain churches that don't have, that, that may not have any instrumentation when, the, when the, the, the pastor is speaking. It's just, they're just speaking and there's no music. In our church that I grew up, my dad preaches in the beginning, there's no music. And then as he gets excited, his vocals start mm-hmm. to change. His tone starts to change. His words start to, start to um, he starts to speak in key. And you got to find the key that he's speaking in. And now you're creating progressions and chords around his speaking. It's almost like you're scoring, right? Wow. And so I think that gives us somewhat of a type of creative sensibility that translates right into pop music, right into, you know, more so just being able to create. For me, it did at least a lot of my, a lot of my records would come from me, like literally being in church and I would be playing an idea right in church. And then I would run over to my studio because my studio was literally a block, literally on the same street, a block from my church. And I would run over to it and lay the idea down at my, at my studio. I guess a few questions. One is, um, how did you get a studio at that point in your life? Because you're just a kid. I mean, well, this that's down the road, of course. That's 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 right after high school. 
in the beginning, in, in, in my early, like, you know, 10, 10 years to 18 years old, I was at, at my dad's house and I had a little spot in the basement or whatever. How would you, uh, you know, you started producing demos at like 15 or something like that. Even before, how, 13. How, how were you doing that? I mean, what were you recording on? Because this isn't, it's not like you had Pro Tools. I had a, I had a false, a four-track false text machine. Um, and I knew how to, I knew how to trick the, I knew how to trick it into seven tracks. There was tricks that you can make it go into, to, to turn it into seven tracks. Um, and, and I learned all those tricks. I also knew tricks, how to sample the backgrounds. Once I did those backgrounds, I would sample them back into my MPC, flying back, fly them back into the false text and one track. So now I have another another six tracks available if I wanted to stack more. So I learned every little trick to turn my false text into like a 24 track when it was really a four track, right? And um, and I don't know, locally, I grew up in a small town called Pomona, New Jersey, which is like 10, 15 minutes from Atlantic City, um, New Jersey. And I, and you know, locally, I would do demos. I would, first, it was, you know, I was doing it for myself. You know, I was just making music and rapping and singing and whatever. And people just around town started hearing about me. And then people would be like, hey, man, can you do my demo? How much you charge? And I'm like, yeah, $35. Let's go. And they would come to my house and I would record them. And I would, you know, have to record, mix it, do it all myself. And I was only like 12 years old. So that's kind of how I got started. How did, you know, writing in a, your dad's house in outside of Atlantic City is far from, it's not like that's the biggest music hub. It's not too far from New York, but it's pretty far from everywhere. Yeah. At that point, there's a, it's much harder to get noticed in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. What's the journey from doing those demos for 35 bucks to somebody opening a door? Was it, you know, do, did your parents help push you towards making it a profession? Because it's so fast. I mean, you're already having songs charting at 16. So somebody, how do you get from 13 years old, 12, 13 years old to 16 having a song charting? Um, well, basically, where I'm from, you're right, it was a small town. It wasn't a music town. It was no real outlets. There was no studios like that. It was like one studio in Atlantic City. Um, and I knew New York. We knew New York was the place you had to be to try to get heard. And I remember I used to, uh, this when I was about, probably about 15 years old, I, I took a low, there was a local diner right around the corner from my house called Pomona Diner. And I would go wash dishes there. And I would make something like, 32 to $35 washing dishes. And I would take the $23 from that money and I would reinvest it back into a bus ticket. And a guy that was a friend of our families, we would get on a bus and go to New York. And I would stand outside of record companies just like on a hustle, like, here's my demo. I had cassette tapes, I had dat tapes, I had CDs, I had everything you can imagine. And I would, you know, I remember clearly being on 49th and 8th Street when it was the old Polygram building and Mercury Records and everything in that building. I would go out there and wait for someone who I thought looked apart come out the building. Hey, man, take my demo. I'm a producer from Jersey. And they would just throw it in the trash. They did what they were supposed to do. You know, you can't really solicit them. So they would just take it, walk around to the side, throw it in the trash. So, and that was really like, you know, after even I met Teddy Riley, I was doing that. You know what I mean? Because Teddy Riley kind of, I got discovered by Teddy Riley when I was probably about to turn 14. And it How was Teddy Riley. I mean, that guy's a Hall of Famer, literally. He is. It was, it was through a, it was through a, this convention called the Impact Convention that used to happen every year in, in Atlantic City. And I had did a demo that I had get paid $35 for. There was this group, this local group called Triple Threat. These three guys, they were kind of like a color me bad, really cool guys. And I did their demo. Well, how did the song and, go? Suck, bro. You don't want to hear it. Don't. <laughs> and I wouldn't sing it. If, if, if it was good, I wouldn't sing it. Um, for the record, you wouldn't sing it even if we weren't but, on this. <laughs> no, no. And, but they thought it was dope, right? They had a manager who was known for getting, they had a manager by the name of Kevin Crump, and he was known for getting people around that area deals. He was, you know, he, he did. And, and so he hired me to do these demos. I think I did like three songs for, for those guys. And he wanted them ready before the impact. And he was like, yo, we got to get them ready for the impact. And I got, I got the songs done. 
And I didn't go to the Impact Convention. They went, they played, somehow they got to Teddy Riley. They played the songs for Teddy Riley, and Teddy Riley's response to them was, I'm not really, well, to, to the manager was, I'm not really feeling the group, but whoever did these tracks, tell him he's dope. So the guy goes to a payphone. This is when they had payphones, Ross. Can you, you can you go back there for? Or are you too young to go back there for? No, I got. I had. I have pay. I know the payphone. Yeah. All right. Deal. The oh, guy. Yeah. The guy goes to a payphone. He calls me up. He goes, "Yo, you never. You never believe what just happened." I'm like, "I'm a kid. I'm 13 years old." He goes, and I love Teddy Riley, by the way. So this is what's crazy is it's not like meeting a producer that I didn't know or a producer that I didn't really. Yeah. You know, I was a Explain- Teddy Riley fan. Yeah, explain who Teddy Riley is for those who don't know. Just Teddy, give like Riley, a- Teddy Riley created a genre called New Jack Swing, an entire genre. When back in, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was pop, there was R&B, there was hip-hop, but then it was New Jack Swing. And, and New Jack Swing was, was a completely his. its own genre, and he created it. And I was a big fan of all. Of, I mean, this guy did Dougie Fred the show from Inspector Gadget. He did that at 14 years old. Can you believe his first chart topping hit was at 14 years old? <laughs> so this is the guy I was like, man, I want to be like Teddy Riley. I used to read about him in magazines. And I'm like, man, I want to be like Teddy Riley. So he called me from a payphone and said, you won't believe this. So we, we got to Teddy Riley. We played the music and he loved your music. And I was like, he did? And he's like, yeah. So I'm freaking out. I'm like, yo, put him on the phone. Put him on the phone. He's like, no, he's gone. He's, he left. And I was like, oh, this is crazy. So I run upstairs to my dad. And I say, dad, Teddy Riley just heard my music. My dad knew I actually was a big fan of Teddy Riley. I'm going, we got to go see him. And my dad was like, where is he at? And I, and I was like, I think he might be on his way back to Virginia Beach. And he goes, what makes you think that? I was like, well, I was looking at the credits. This is when credits really matter, Ross. Like, you know, you know, we wish credits were the way it was, right? It's getting better, but you know, something about reading those credits, right? I used to read the credits, so I knew where every studio was. I knew the best studios in the world because I would listen to albums and I'd be like, man, oh, Chung King in New York is where they recorded this, this Wu-Tang album, so-and-so, right? So all of Teddy Riley's credits in that year was at a place called Future Recording in Virginia Beach, right? And the name of the record company, which was his record company, was called Future Records. So I'm like, it has to be his own personal studio. So I told my dad, dad, we got to go to Virginia. We got to go to, I think he's in the Virginia Beach. He goes, but you don't know for sure. He could have, you know, left Atlantic City, went to New York, went anywhere. I was like, I don't know, but we got to take the chance. You always told me to strike when the iron's hot. It's hot, dad. It's hot. It's hot, right? My dad's like, we got church in the morning. <laughs> the next day, he was like, we can't drive. We can't drive six hours to Virginia Beach. And I'm like, dad, we got to, you just got to take the shot. And my dad sat there and he looked at me and he, I think he saw that look like, he knew I was a go-getter and he, he taught me to be a go-getter. And then he's just like, all right, get your stuff together. We'll leave late tonight. I'm going to go take a nap. And next thing you know, we're on the road driving six hours. We arrive at Teddy Riley's studio probably about 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and no one's there. No one. Like, the, the parking lot, and my dad looks at me, and he goes, he's not here. And I, Dad, I said, Dad, it's like 9 in the morning. Let's just wait. So we're there till like, noon. No one shows up. We go down the street. We get something to eat. We come back. No one's there. Right? And then my, now my dad is, like, thinking, like, he just drove for nothing. And I'm like, Dad, just wait. And next thing you know, like right when he was contemplating on leaving, this blue SL 500 Mercedes Benz with the top down comes comes in the parking lot. And there it is, Teddy Riley. And my light eyes lit up like huge. I remember this moment so vividly. I get, he gets out the car and I literally went to go like run up to him and his security guard grabbed me. And... And Teddy was like, I think he's just a kid, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And I was just like, Mr. Riley, I was like, Mr. Riley, um, I know you don't know me. We drove here from Atlantic City. You heard my music yesterday. And he goes, yesterday? He goes, yeah. I said, you were in Atlantic City, right? He goes, yeah. I said, I was the guy who did that music on those three guys. He goes, you drove all the way here? I was like, yeah, I heard you liked it. He said, I loved it. And he took me in the studio 
And then he gave me an internship. So every summer I would go to Virginia Beach and study under Teddy Riley. Dude, that's a legendary story. Um, going from being an intern, uh, even for a legend, to being able to produce your own record and really, you know, jumping into it jumps to the big leagues your first thing is a you know it's a obviously a remix of the Vanessa Williams song and it changes the game for you I'm sure because then it just sort of proves that you can play maybe you've done maybe you had done some other stuff before but that seems to be like the first thing that really charts well my um, dad you know what it was my dad was an intricate part of so yeah we were working on we were buzzing in the industry like people were starting to give me the shots, go in the studio with the artists and work with different artists. But my dad, my because Teddy was pushing that, or your dad, yeah, was pushing Ted, it? Teddy definitely created a buzz. He definitely created yeah. like I got this kid down here and he's he's coming. Like he would definitely tell people that in the industry, and they would come down to Virginia and they would see me and I would introduce myself. But what really happened was my dad, my dad had this idea one day. He was like, I got an idea, and I was like, What's up? He goes. What if we started remixing everybody's songs? And I go, I go, okay. He goes, I think that could be a good way to get you in the doors because everybody back then, it was all about the remix. And he goes, you remix a song, but you got to make it better than the original version. And so that's how we really, I started remixing and they started putting my remix versions out as the main version. They started shooting videos to my remixes and it created this kind of frenzy of, you know, I did, you know, Vanessa Williams and Pilot Bell. And then I did stuff for, for Bad Boy, for, for Diddy, for Total and all these different people. And so people were talking about it. So then from there, it was like, okay, that kind of got me started. Even Clive Davis, like, hey, can you remix? I want you to remix this record for so-and-so when I first met Clive. So it was just like, it created this buzz. But then one day I was just like, yeah, these remixes is cool, but I'm, I have no publishing on any of these records. I need to, I want to I own something. And I kind of just stopped doing the remixes for like a while. But I had probably like, I mean, I had at least 30 remixes out, at least. The amount of people who believe that they're talented in this business um, and then assume that because they're close to it, then that means that it'll happen for them. Versus people who are like, I'm going to remix all these existing songs, probably not get paid a whole lot, you know, and having to go through the work, it just sounds like an incredible amount of work, but then it shows that you work, so then people are willing to give you a shot yeah. to the next thing, but it's just so much work. It, it, so. it, was, it, it was, but here's the key to it too. I was branding myself at the time. So all my remixes... You know, you hear people talk about, you hear tags like Murder Beats on the track and all these different tags. I was doing that before every, anybody. All my remixes back then, I was like, another Rodney Jerkins remix, y'all. That was my tag. I used to put it in all, they said I couldn't do it again, but I did. I had that tag. I had those two tags and I would put it on every record. So that way, when it went out, people would know that there's somebody saying another Rodney Jerkins remix before every remix. Yeah. This was before Dark Child was created. Yeah. This was the government name on all these tracks. When was uh when was Dark Child as a brand created? That's much later. Yeah, right? that's probably yeah, I would say I was probably 19, 18, no, about 18 and a half, about to turn 19 right before I, when I created the whole Dark Child thing. Why did you feel like you needed to do? Cuz everybody had a nickname and I didn't. Everybody yeah, like you have such a good name, I felt dude. Bad, bro, I felt bad because everybody had a nickname, and I'm just saying my name. I'm like, I, I we didn't call Teddy Raleigh Teddy Raleigh. We called him Tr. You know what I mean? Like we called, you know, we didn't call Sean Combs Sean Combs. We called him Puffy, and I'm like, well, what's my nickname going to be? So that it, you know, so it's like, yo, you need a nickname slash production king. It was a culture thing, man. man That's all. You have you have one of those you have one of those names where nobody's nobody says Rodney, nobody says Jerkins, everyone says Rodney Jerkins. It's like it's you get the full name every time. Yeah, but it's can I tell like you, I just changed my producer tag in the last in the last couple of months. You're going to hear a lot of records come out over the next year or two. And you know Taylor Parks, who's, I'm, I'm sure yeah. she's incredible. Person. She did my producer tag for me. And she just yelled, Rodney. Rodney! And that's it. That's my new tag I'm using on everything. Beautiful. So she's now they won't say Rodney person. Jerkins anymore, Ross. They're going to just say my first name. Rodney! 
we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> exactly. say it like that. Um, okay, so you start, you know, now you get in the room, and you're starting, you know, it's again, it's one thing to get in the room, it's another thing to get in the room with Mary J. Blige, it's another thing to get in with Monica. Um, you know, the real change and where it's like there's no going back, the train has left the station, whatever, is Monica, the Brandy and Monica song, obviously The Boy Is Mine. You know, it just, it then it just becomes nonstop. Um, what was the experience of going from, yeah, I'm playing in this league to having number one records? Did you start thinking it was easy? Never, it's never been easy. Um, everything happens in, for me, it was, it was like, it was the singles and the doubles and the triples before the home run. But I knew the home run was coming because it happened just like that. It went literally from me producing a record on this guy named Joe. And I did this song called Don't Want to Be a Player. And it was like number four in the R&B charts, right? And then I did Mary G. Blige, I Can Love You, featuring Little Kim. And it was number two on R&B chart, like in this order, four, then two. And I'm like, this, I cannot go to three or five, right? I got to go to number one. And then the next record that I did was The Boy Is Mine. And that kind of just like, you know, when they, they say when you, when you, when it's like potato chips, like you can't stop eating them. Like once I got the taste of that in my mouth of that number one, I was like, I, I can't just have that one potato chip. I need to have the whole bag plus more. And so I got real greedy wanting number ones. And I, and I, I remember telling my team, I had a team of writers and, and, and I said, everybody was so excited because we was number one with that song for like 13 or 14 weeks. And I remember everybody celebrating. Each week was like, yo, it's been seven weeks. It's been eight weeks. It's been nine weeks and everybody's excited to celebrate. I never get walking in the studio one day and I say, yo, we're celebrating a little too much because we were so excited. I was like, and everybody looking at me like I'm crazy, but being a, the leader of the team, I'm like, yo, if we, we can't, we can't, we got to put our foot on the gas now. We're here. We're here. Now the phone is ringing, Ross. So you know what this is like. You got the hit. So what you worked for all those years, you finally got the hit, right? So it's, you're either going to continue and keep hitting home runs, right? Or you're going to fall down a little bit. It's up to you at that point, right? It's only up to you because they're giving you the ball now. They're, giving, they're pitching it right down the middle for you. So it's up to you to crack it, right? So I'm like, okay, we got to follow up, guys. Let's go. And from there, it was Angel of Mine, Monica, Jennifer Lopez, if you have my love. Whitney Houston, it's not right, but it's okay. Michael Jackson, Rock My World. Jesse Child, Say My Name. It was just like this string of home runs, right? And it was because... We were so engulfed in the zone, right? To the point where I wouldn't even take a vacation. I would not take a vacation. And even when I took my first vacation, Craig Kalman sent an artist to Bahamas to work with me on my vacation. You know what I mean? Because I wanted it so bad. I wanted it to keep going so bad. I didn't want to stop. I wanted that feeling again and again and again. And, um, and I still want that feeling again and again and again. I crave it. I love it. I was going to say, you know, that's, it's so addicting. That feeling is, is, you know, the, the, the work ethic it takes to get there is one thing. And then the, uh, the work ethic to keep it is even a level up and it's exhausting. It's super exhausting. You You know what? I'm glad, I'm glad I did it while I was young on that level because I don't work myself to death anymore. I used to work. There's some really crazy stories about me working in the studio where I would stay up four or five days and not sleep. And How would you do that? And just hitting Red Bulls like crazy. And there's some crazy, you know, Dave Pensado can tell some crazy stories about me in the studio. But now I appreciate the time now. I appreciate my life and what I've, what I've done to get to this stage and having the opportunity to vacation and rest. Um... But I will say well, this: What is would that, you say to somebody who's in your like? If you were to talk to younger you, my assumption is you wouldn't have changed a whole lot. But what what's the advice you'd give somebody who's in your position who's just had a hit? You know? Yeah, I mean, like, I probably would tell them what I'm saying right now is like, 
put your foot on the gas. Like, don't let up. I've seen people let up. I've seen people throughout my career get a, get a number one and think that's it, right? Like, like think, of the, think about some of the greatest basketball players who were incredible basketball players. Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson, one of my favorite basketball players. Killer, killer mentality. Never won a championship. The one time to get there, he didn't, he didn't win a championship. I believe if he would have won a championship, he probably would have won two or three because your mentality, most people who won one, the, 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 the winners, they somehow get to two. We think about it, right? They somehow get to two. Like Tom Brady just got seven. It's all, it's here. It's the, he's craving it. He's craving the victory. And he knows, like, and he doesn't have to. I'm sure Tom Brady's not doing the workouts that he was doing when he was 21 years old. I'm sure he's not so intense at at working at right now. I'm sure he's working smarter, not harder. And I and I would I would encourage someone who's just getting started to work to do to work hard, to go crazy because you got time to rest later. You got time to chill out later. Um. You know, a, a lot of the writers that or the artists that you named that you started having that string of hits, a lot of them had had a hit before that. Um, that makes it tougher. Yeah, well, you think it's tougher to have somebody's second hit? Yeah, totally. Not second I, hit, because I, I don't know if I did. And, and those those artists, I wasn't doing their second hit. I was doing their... Their ninth. Their fifth. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I think maybe Destiny's yeah. Child... I might have had their second hit or something like that, but that was yeah. I guess that's hit. sort of what, like, I guess that's sort of where I was going to go next. Is you know that Jennifer Lopez was really young at that point. That was pretty early on in her career. That was her first, was, first hit. That was her first hit, and same with Destiny's Child. All, all at the same time. It really was like defining those two, and that's different in the music business than. You know, you have a hit with Whitney Houston. It's like it's hard not to have a hit with Whitney Houston. That's not true, but like the mentality around a hit for Whitney Houston is like it's Whitney who's driving it, not the song. And but the mentality around Destiny's Child or Jennifer Lopez and breaking that starts to become this eighteen, nineteen year old is is the juice behind it, not the you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It starts to put on a different kind of pressure. What was the... A lot of pressure. What was the relationship that you had with the people around you feeling that kind of pressure? Yeah, it was a lot of it was a it was a lot of pressure, man. Because you don't want to be the guy that didn't make the hit for those. Man. That's what that's what I mean. I felt like it was actually more pressure <clears throat> when you had a Whitney Houston, right? Because you know you got to remember, I played songs for Clive Davis for Whitney at eighteen, and he told me to pretty much get out of his office. Pretty much said this is turn. I got I actually recently found footage randomly popped up somewhere of him listening to the song. Someone had a camera, video camera, and him listening to the song with Whitney Houston that she didn't take, that they didn't take. And what was, what was the song? The song was called um, um, something about cheat, um, cheating, cheating on you or something like that. Something about cheating on you. Um, and 
it's incredible to me to watch it because I never saw it and I'm watching it now. I'm like, whoa, like this is crazy because she's sitting there with Bobby Brown and Clive. He's playing. I just got this song from Rodney Jerkins and he's playing this song and you can tell she's listening to it and it's not moving her. And to me, it was the greatest song of all time. Cause you know, when you, I got a song for Whitney, man. This is it. I'm going to, this is the big leagues. And you, and then, you know, you get that call like, you know, oh, no one likes it. You think it's, you know, most people just would feel defeated in that moment. And me, I was like, okay, I'm gonna be, I'm coming back to see you, Clive. Don't worry, I'm gonna be back. I'm young, but I'll be back. And a year later, I'm back with it's not right, but it's okay. So okay. the pressure for me was I made I actually liked the pressure, right? And I would tell everybody around me, like, yo, we gotta nail it because of the artists, their magnitude. The artists, you know, I didn't look at it, I look at it like Man, if you're about to work with with Whitney Houston, you better you better have a great song with her. You don't want it to get back to Clive and everybody that you you bombed on Whitney. You know what I mean? No matter what, like so you 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 felt that pressure, but you I for me I like the pressure. Give me the pressure. Do you still work the same way? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, even though I feel like we don't have those type of artists right now. You know what I mean? Like we have some good artists, but we don't have those 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 artists commanded a, a little bit something different. I feel, um, and I'm I hope we get back to like those those type of artists that you know those artists that just had those. That, we have a few out out here that's like that, but the artists that had that certain mystique about them, and you know they they just they were they were different, and I still work the same way. Like I like. Someone called me recently and was like, yeah, I mean, we want you to get in so-and-so. I was like, yo, call me when y'all almost done. Because to me, that's the pressure. Like, the pressure to me is, you know, Ross, we want the single. We don't just yeah, want to be on the project, but we want to land a, a single on the project, right? We want to, that's when everybody hears it, right? We want the single. So I'm like, yo, call me when it's almost done so then I can listen to it, listen to what you guys did and see if I can beat what you guys have done. That's the pressure. Now, in 2003... I'm I'm at my studio on Sunset, and Usher is making an album called Confessions that sold like 24 million albums or something, right? I kid you not. He came to to work with me. He wanted to work with me, so he came to my studio, and I wasn't at my creative best, meaning like I knew I needed a break. I was burnt out. And I didn't, I didn't have it. Like, you know, sometimes like people call it writer's block when you're not writing. I just was like, uh, I don't really have it. And I looked at Usher and when he came in, I was like, yo, man, I, I, I can't work with you right now. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, it would be a disservice, man. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not there right now. I'm just not creatively there right now. It's so interesting. So many people don't recognize those moments and songwriters burn out, man. I recognize Especially, it because it wasn't working for me. So I would come in the studio and I'm like, it's not coming out. What's what's happening right now? What's coming out? And it, But it taught me so much about myself. It taught me, I actually learned how to get back into creativity very fast now if I feel like that. you know. How, how do you do that? So for me, I lay on the couch. I put on classical music. I get out of the realm. I take myself back to my childhood. My childhood was a five-year-old learning classical music. And I go back. That's why when you listen to The Boy Is Mine and you hear those harps and you hear the harpsichord sounds on If You Have Mother, that's my childhood, man. That's, that's what I listened to growing up, listening to cla- classical music from my classical teacher. So I go and I just lay on the couch. I pray. And I listen to classical music for like 30, 45 minutes. And then I jump up and I'm back at it. So I don't even believe in, I don't even believe in the whole writer's block theory. I believe, I believe that we crutch ourselves, right? By not, by not resting our creative properly. Right? We were made, think about it. We were made to create. We were made to create. Whether you want to or not, Right? But we were made to create, whether it's having children or whatever, whether you want to or not, you're made to create. Right? But if you don't rest your mind yeah. properly and do the right things, 
Put it like, here's another way to look at it. This is great for all these up and coming writers and producers, right? This is how you got to view yourselves. You and I right now are communicate, communicating through technology, laptops, right? Probably, I'm sure your laptop is top notch, just like my laptop's top notch, right? But even our laptops need to be refreshed. When they're getting too much information, they still need to be restarted. And that's, we're humans. We got to refresh ourselves. We got to take breaks. We have to, we have to understand that, that you, you know, Michael Jackson used to always say, you got to exhaust yourself in the music. And I'm like, what's that mean, Michael? He goes, you got to work so hard into the music that it burns you out. It forces you to take a break. It forces you to say, okay, I got to step away from it for a minute. I'll be back in a week or two. Reset. Refresh. It's amazing how few people even recognize how something like classical music or gospel or um, listen to Brazilian music, listen to whatever kind of music you want that's different than the music that you're sitting in front of right now because it, like, it really does inspire different chord changes. It inspires different emotions. And, and, and the truth is the only songs that work are the ones that are different enough that have a harpsichord in it. Like those, otherwise, everyone else is busy writing that same song that sounds like the last song you wrote. And in your case, like you start to hear your song on the radio all the time. It's like, do, do you start trying to repeat some of the success you know, by creating the same kind of song? Yeah, at I think, that time. Well, I think what happens is I think you 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 buy into the hype of your own formula. Yeah, and I, right. that definitely happened with me several times. If you if you study my if you study my career, which is twenty five plus years, you'll see like my '90s sound is different from my two thousand sound. My mid two thousand sound is different from my two thousand ten to fifteen sound. My right now the sound that I'm in is different from all of that, right? And it's because you buy into like, once you make that hit, and the record companies are a big part of this, right? So you make a hit like The Boy's Mind and the record companies are telling you they want another Boy's Mind. And you're like, I can't make another Boy's Mind, but I can make something that has that feeling, right? And then you make another record that has a feeling of it. Boy's Mind and If You Have My Love is two completely different records, right? But if you probably press play, you probably would know that. If he did that, he probably did this. Because there's certain things in it, there's certain feeling, whether it's in the drums, whether it's in the musicality, whether it's in the songwriting, whether it's in the melody, there's certain things that's going to bring you back to the base of what we're doing. I feel like you're part of the, you know, this generation of producers that um, that kind of changed the business on things like publishing and like the the entrepreneurship attached to copyrights, the entrepreneurship attached to being a producer. Did you have business partners? Where does that really come from? And do you know what I mean by that? Like, I feel like the way that you were approaching your business was not how producers before your generation were doing it. Definitely not. I, we, um, at the, at the time, my father was my manager and, he's, and, he, and, and he was very aggressive. Very aggressive because I was his son and he didn't want to see anyone burn me. That, that's the first thing, right? But he also was super like creative. And we would talk constantly about like, he would say things like, I'll give you a story real quick, right? Because nobody was doing this, right? So nobody did this. So we were doing a, a song deal one time with a record company. And it was a 30 song deal. At, and huh. it was at my top <laughs> fee for all, each song. No discounts, all 30 songs, right? And my dad told the record company, he goes, I also want in the contract, okay, they had a certain amount of platinum artists that they had to deliver to us each to, to fulfill this commitment, right? My dad put something in the contract with them that said, if they don't give us these certain amount of artists, within a certain amount of time to produce, then they had to give me a, a million dollars bonus, pretty much. 
And they didn't. So they had to cut a check, a seven-figure check, you know, for something that they didn't do. And so the lawyers would just be like, we never, they would, actually, they would actually say, we never did deals like this. We never seen anything like this. And we, and we were doing, we were, we were kind of just creating what we thought was, and at the time he was protecting me, right? Because he was saying, okay, if we're doing these many amount of songs, I need 20 of them to be on Platinum Artists. I don't mind him working with your new artists or your, or your gold selling, but I need 20 out of those 30 to be on your top selling artists because that's only going to grow his brand. And when they couldn't reach the threshold within that year of what they were supposed to deliver, they had to pay for it. And so we, we created all these different type of business. You know, I, I, you know, I think that I was one of the first ones to create, you know, all upfront producer fee. When everybody was getting half upfront, you know, we sat down one time and was like, yo, I don't like this half upfront thing, right? Because what happened was you would get half your producer free upfront, right? And then you may not see your other half, right? Or if you did, it was like months, almost a year down the road. So we was like, okay, what we're going to start doing is getting 75% of our producer fee. So we feel we were closer to the 100%. Let's get 75. So we made that our thing. 75 yeah. produced. 75%. That's the thing. Then once it worked and then we got successful, it was like, you really want us to go in with so-and-so? We, we need it all up front. The thing and is, nowadays became... it's all spec, right? Now it's all spec. Right. But the thing is now if they, if they want your record, they'll pay you up front. And I think that that's the same kind of thing of songwriters asking for points from labels outside of a producer fee, you know, it's like if songwriters start doing that in mass, do you know who, we'll get it. Do you know who created the songwriters fee? We songwriters get paid fees now to write songs. Do you know who's the first one getting songwriter fees on records? I remember Esther doing it, but I'm sure there's someone before Sean, that. Sean Garrett. Sean Garrett, nice. Sean Garrett, Jimmy Iovine. First one, Sean Garrett, and that's what I'm saying. It's like you're you're you are writing history. You're bettering your community, right? Yeah. I was bettering the producer community by changing some of the standards that was that was that would no one was used to certain certain deals. And now you got other producers saying, "Wait, Rodney Jerk is good. Man, I could do it now, right?" Yeah. You had songwriters who were not getting fees, and Sean Garrett was the first one to say, "Man, I need like you got to give me twenty thousand if you want me to write for you." Yeah, it just now you it got people be... like James Fontenot that won't even go in the studio without a fee. Yeah, and 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 some people will be like, "Man, he's tripping." Other people are like, "No, that's it's business. Like that's you know, it's, if you go to a hotel, you got to pay for the room." Yeah, and all, it, you know, it helps that you're talking about you know three of the biggest writers in in one sort of handful it's like it but some of that trickles down to the the writer who gets their first cut and a producer gets their first cut now will get their fee up front because of setting the standards so it's like it take once you get those guys at the top it's so important for the rest of the industry to start to follow and and for the younger people to demand well rodney gets it can i get it <laughs> you know yeah we definitely um, changed the game for me for me i think differently now than i did back then right for me, I've, I've learned how important the back end is. So back then, I used to think the upfront was the most important thing in the world. And then as I got older, I was like, nah, actually, the back end is really where it's at. Like, if you can position yourself on the back end, you'll do way better than the front end. Yeah, take take less of a fee and more points and, there you, and take, a, take a gamble on yourself. There you always, go. There you always. go. You know, you have, you have these ebbs and flows in your career and there's obviously these moments that where shit just blows up out of nowhere obviously telephone is famous because it had you know it's lady gaga and beyonce but it was supposed to be for britney, uh, britney and that's super famous you know and you know then you end up with black eyed peas right in their you know in their prime kind of releasing songs and having these top 10 hits and when you have that having had sort of ebbs and flows, do you start to appreciate it differently? Oh, totally, man. Totally. Um, for me, man, I appreciate, I, I appreciate the process so much. I appreciate, I appreciate, you know, the, there's a, there's an art to reinventing yourself too. 
you know, and I appreciate that. I got to say, I appreciate the blessings of being able to sit back and go back to the laboratory. It's like a mad scientist, right? And you go back to the laboratory, you're like, okay, what can I do different now? Because I've done that and I don't want to keep doing that. And even though, even though people want you to keep doing that, you know, I always want to challenge myself, be like, man, can I do, man, can't get, can't, I just can't get enough of the Black Eyed Peas sounds nothing like the boy's mind. Right. You know what I mean? And that, to me, that's more of a testament to the well, no, as long creation. As, as, long as, as long as you love me and telephone, I, I, I almost, they, they're at, you know, they're totally different than, than other stuff, you know? And, and Bieber at that time, that's actually the year, I think that's right when you and I met and first worked together on stuff was around. Hey, but Ross, you know, you know what's interesting about this though if you listen to telephone and if you listen to the first first two bars of telephone what's the sound that i use i use the same exact sound that i use in the boy's mind huh. 20 years later i did i wrote telephone with lady gaga in 2008 it came out in 2010 i think i did the boy's mind came out in 1998 so you're talking about literally 20 years later and i use the same exact sound to heart and i just wanted to prove to myself that I could use the same sound and but then put pop and techno sonics around it to create something completely different. And I'm gonna do it again probably in the next year or two, just to prove that I can do it again to myself, that I can create other sonics around that sound. In 2012, you know, I I I just started getting cuts, you know. I don't think I'd had a hit or anything at that point, but that was the first time that I started going to your studio and the, and there was all the rooms were going and there were all these people creating music around you. And there's, you know, you're there all the time. You said some really interesting things that, that I still like quote you on some shit. <laughs> what I'll say, you know? I mean, there was a, I had started getting cuts with a lot of different artists or they were about to come out. That same year, 2012, I, you know, I think I had Maroon 5 and Nikki and Bieber and some of these other ones. And, and there was somebody that I had mentioned that I had already had a cut with and you had a cut with. And you were like, yeah, but you can only put their name on your discography once. Like, no matter how many cuts you have with them, it only you only say like, oh, I worked with Michael Jackson. They don't go through like all the different eras of right. these artists. And you've worked with so many different artists at different times in their careers. And then you kind of go to the next artist. But I always thought that that was really interesting because there's some artists, there's some producers who stick, live and die by the artists that they're connected with. Yeah. And you kind of have your own thing and you're just constantly like, oh, I haven't worked with that one yet. I want to work with that one. And I just remember thinking, like, oh, that's cool. Uh, you know, they're two, two are totally valid, but I liked the idea. If you look at my discography now, it's like it's all the so many different people because I just was like, oh, yeah, I've never worked with that person. I want to go there. Not necessarily like I want to hit up that guy I had a, a big record with last two years ago and see what they're up to. I just always thought that that was really interesting. I don't know if you still feel the same I way. Definitely, I feel the same exact way right now because I feel like it takes, number one, it takes a, it takes a, a what do you call it? It takes a, a village to build, to, 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 to sell your sound and, and get your sound out there, right? But think of it, man, you, you bought a beautiful home and you got this land and, and you got this land around your home, right? And no one wants to build one tree. <laughs> Nobody wants to walk out the house and look at one tree. Right? That, that, that just makes no sense to me that you got this beautiful home, all this land, and you got one tree. So you want to build a lot of trees, right? And that's, that's, that's how I look at it. Like, you know, I, I want to be creative until I can't be creative anymore. And I, want to, and I want it to sprinkle on all artists of all different races and creeds and genres all around the world. That's what I want to do. I also don't remember if I if I've ever seen somebody beat up a synth more than I saw. Like when you play drums on a synth, you play it like you're playing the drums, and those are not the same instruments. But you play a synth, you will you'll beat the shit out of a synth. <laughs> you have no. I bet you break synths all the time. Yeah, I definitely got a lot of keys broken. <laughs> I always tell my guys, you got to fix those keyboards over there. It's like I felt like you didn't. It's like it wasn't secure enough. You just see this thing hop around. And you're just slamming on this thing. 
Yeah. I just didn't realize that you were supposed to play a synth like that. I've always been aggressive like that with keyboards and drums. You know, my brother always said, he, my brother used to like, I, I don't consider myself the best drummer, right? But my brother always liked when I played the drums in church in different places because he says, yo, you hit them so hard. Like, you, even if you're not the best, people are going to feel it, <laughs> right? Because I just was like, bah, bah. I was just like hard. But I played in a heavy metal band when I was in eighth grade in school. So you had to be aggressive. So I just like, I'm just, I just like my stuff to, I, I, I like my stuff to feel aggressive. But I think that's what it is. And, I, and, I, and, rather it's, and it's funny because you can hit a drum pad the same way. You can hit it soft. And it's going to do the same thing as you're going like this. But this just makes me feel different when I'm like this, you know? Yeah, I feel like it sounds that way. And then in the end, you're still quantizing everything anyway. So it's like, yeah. it, it, there's, but I, I totally get it now. Um, your family, all of them are musicians. Were they, are they supportive, envious? Was it exciting for everybody to go on this journey with you? Yeah, I mean, my brother was one of my co-writers. On he wrote co-wrote on the Boy's Mind, Say My Name, Rock More World. It's not right. A lot of songs, probably, probably twenty hit songs. He wrote co-wrote on. Um, you know, I, yeah, I used to follow. I used to watch him when I was a little kid. Create. That's what made me want to create. He was actually the first one into production in the house. I didn't see. I didn't see too much jealousy in in our family when it came to the musicianship of it all because my sisters didn't care to be in the, on the music side of it all like that. They didn't really, you know, it was more a church thing for them. Right. But, you know, and then me and me, my brother, we had a, we had a, a, a balance in it all. You know what I mean? We, we, we had a, a balance. Would you do anything differently with your career? Obviously, you know, you're still making music, but you're such a, a crazy journey and you started so young that I feel like you'd have advice for you along the way that that's yeah. different than most, than most producers who like, you know, it's like by the time I had cuts, I was 30. Yeah. I don't know? know if I would have ever like, you know, like creatively, I don't know if I would change anything like creatively, but I don't like when I got, when I was working at Def Jam, for example, you know, there's, you know, a lot of times record companies will, them being a producer to be an A&R or something like, I don't think I, w- I would have told myself, don't do that. Don't do that. That's a crutch. That's a crutch. Right? And why is it a crutch? Because I feel like, you know, where we're supposed to be is right here in the studio. Making music all the time. Not listening in an A&R meeting with seven, 17 other guys in the room, girls in the room, and you're playing music back and forth. And, and you know, that I don't think that's where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to create. We're supposed to be the ones that, get, get, that, that should be in the studio creating constantly. So I fell victim of that twice, where it was like, you know, got someone took me to dinner and was like, yo, you would be really good on the A&R side. And you go in there, and then and it's like, you're thinking you can change the world in there, right? You're thinking like, man, this company needs a, needs some help. Man, no. You, the way you help change the company is get in the studio, make music, and send the music to put out. That's how you yeah. help the company. It's it, it, this has to do with that idea of you know you get paid a check. All the there are some there are a lot of writers who listen to this too who are our peers, and and how many of them have taken a consultancy with a label. You know, and it drains the little bit of their life force out of them. Yeah, but you know? you know that's part of the reason why those consultancies even exist is because the label wants them to feel like they're part of their company to get more of their stuff from them, more of their brain power from them. And then what it does, it, it kind of it kind of makes them feel like they're exclusive when they're not exclusive, right? And now they're giving most of their stuff to just that one company when there's other companies that needs, there's other artists that needs their goods. Man, I want to keep going on this, but I know we're running short on time. So we're going to go to the next segment, which is a five for five. I'm just going to list five people and I'm just curious what you, what you think about them. Uh, we're going to start with your father. Man, the uh, great man who, who if, if it wasn't for him, investing $1,200 off of his life insurance to get me a, uh, I roll it over here, MPC. Not this one. I got a 60 back then when I was 12 years old. 
He invested $200 off his life insurance to get me my first drum machine. If it wasn't for that belief and faith that he had that his son would become something special, I don't know if I would even be making music today. Your brother. My brother was the, was the fuel behind me. Watching, watching his genius on a local level at our home, growing up as a seven-year-old kid, and he's 14 and he's making beats. Um, if it wasn't for him making those beats and me seeing it, I, that's what inspired me. That's what motivated me to want to become a producer. The Grammys. The Grammys. When I think of the Grammys, I used to, when I came up, I used to think of the Grammys as just this gold statue that everybody wants to win. But now I look at it as a, as a, as a, as a, an example for me is the advocacy part of it, being part of the recording academy and helping push issues for all the songwriters and producers that I care about, that I know that they should care about, educating the writers and producers on um, different things that we advocate for. So I see the Grammys in a completely different light than I saw in my first half of my career. And so I get very involved in that part of going down to Capitol Hill and on a local level, all types of levels with Recording Academy um, because I really feel like they really are fighting on behalf of us creatives. Beyonce. The closest, the closest artist, the closest artist to Michael Jackson in my, from my perspective with the work ethic. I, I worked with them both and I think her work ethic is, is the closest that I've ever seen to Michael Jackson. Lady Gaga's close too up there, but Beyonce is neck and neck when it comes to work ethic. Joy. The greatest human being I've ever met. The, the person who changed my life in so many different ways that made me the, the, a better man, made me a better father, um, and taught me, taught me how what balance was. Taught me to understand, and I'm still learning, by the way. I don't have it down packed, but I'm, I'm learning. Like, it's okay to leave the studio at 6.30 to go have dinner with your family. It's okay to take a break and, and go somewhere for a week and get away from it. Um, she just teaches me so much about life and, and to enjoy, enjoy the fruits of my labor. Oh, man. That is like... And by the way, y'all, Joy is my wife. Yeah. Um, it... It's it's just that's the realness that's so hard for probably any entrepreneur, but specifically, you know, people who have to, you know, you create an asset from scratch, and if you don't, then no one else will do it for you. And then when you have that mindset, it's impossible to leave that studio. And it helps to have a good partner in in this Every, life. Everybody needs a joy, bro. Everybody needs a joy. joy. Like I've had a lot of number ones, thank God, but she's my number one. She's the ultimate. She's the ultimate number one. Well, thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, I know we've talked about it before, but you know, for on a personal note, man, you opened your doors to your studio to me. I still think once. I still think Ocean's a smash, man. I still th- we got to figure that one out still. Like we, we, you, you opened the, you opened the door for me when I didn't really know, you know, I was just starting to walk through doors and you were, you opened it and you, you kept saying, come back. And I would keep coming back and I would keep coming back. And it was like, you know, I always have a special place in my heart for the people who believed in me when I didn't know how to, if if what I was doing was up to par and I, I hadn't proven yet that I could write hits at that point. And you still open doors, and it's like you know, from then till now, like you and I have maintained a friendship, and that's been ten years, bro. Yeah, ten years, man. That's a decade that I've known you, and and uh, you know, obviously, it's your achievements do a lot of things, but I'm not the only writer who, you know, started their career by walking through your doors. You know, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate uh, it, man. I I appreciate it, and. uh, We'll have to have you back when we're all used to running. Anytime, bro. Anytime. (laughs) All right, homie. All right, buddy. Appreciate it. There you go. Take care. Peace. Later.
This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirchin, Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.